said you wanted to know how to get to Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. And you're listening to Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. And of course, that's the classic, The Untouchables. And the writer of those words, and my goodness, what words, is David Mamet. And his new book, Chicago, is just terrific. And it's a novel. And David is also a terrific playwright. And he has written such classics as American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, which itself became a classic film. He's also written and directed his own gems, House of Games, a classic about conmen, Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, State of Maine. And he's also won acclaim for several screenplays, including The Verdict with Paul Newman, Wag the Dog, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Hoffa, and The Edge, which, by the way, get it on Netflix. Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. It's terrific. Well, we had a chance to sit down with David Mamet earlier, and here's our recorded conversation about his book, Chicago, and about his life. David, in this book, one of the characters, central characters, is the city itself, and it's a city you grew up in. What is Chicago? Tell people who've never been there, give them a feel for this city. How's it different than San Francisco or New York? Because it's not New York, and it's not San Francisco. No, people said, I think it was Mencken who said it was the first American city that wasn't European, was Chicago. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, because, you know, I wrote the book, and there's certainly a I mean, it would be un-Chicagoan, but accurate to say there's an ethos there. But I was thinking perhaps it's something different. Perhaps it's something to do with geography. Every time I go to to San Francisco, for the first hour, I'm saying, honey, send my clothes. I love it here. And after about four hours, I'm saying, yoke me out. Get me out of here. It's just something about the energy there that's it's odd. Maybe it's because of where I grew up. And then I think about the Los Angeles thing, about the geographical energy here. That's this little spit of land, which is artificially maintained between this uncaring desert and this uncaring ocean. And there's a very bizarre kind of life that goes around. And if you think about Los Angeles literature, what there is of it, almost all of it takes place at night. It's, you know, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Joseph Hansen and novels about mistaken identity and people not knowing who they are. It's all the same book. And it has something to do with geography. And if you go back and look at uh, Richard Henry Dana, you know, writing about landing on the coast here, just the south of Santa Barbara, and whatever that was, 1820 or 1830, he says the same thing. He says that the people didn't really live there. So there's something odd about these two cities to my sensibility. On the other hand, Chicago and New York have an internal energy that I think comes from geography. I mean, they're the confluence of a lot of... Um, uh, in, in both cases, of a great body of water, a great river system, and land transportation. That's why the people s- settled there. And there's, I think, something intrinsic, I hate to say in the rocks and stones, but maybe it is. But what do I know? 
Yeah, we did a terrific hour on not the Chicago fire, but what happened after, David. And by the way, it was an interesting story why the city built burned down, because it had grown so fast in only 30 years. And all these buildings were crowded together in a long, arid summer, and poof, it goes up in smoke. What was remarkable, David, was how quickly Chicago rebuilt the energy and the power of the spirit of the people, the practicality and the just the grit of these people. It was remarkable. Yeah, well, there's always been a great energy. You know, it's been a town of working people, you know, and, and New York has been a town of merchants and, um, uh, uh, and plutocrats, you know, that, the, that's, that's just what it is. I mean, to the point now where they're today, there's no lower class and no middle class in, in New York City. But Chicago's always been the working people. Yep. And, and let's drill down a little bit on your childhood in Chicago, because you grew up here. This, this place is in your blood. Uh, talk about, if you can, David, your dad, because I think so much of your writing, uh, I think, comes from that relationship, at least maybe not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Talk about that. Well, my dad and his brother, Henry, um, all four of my grandparents are, are immigrants. They all came over from uh, Poland, which was then the on the passports, it says Russia, Warsaw, Russia, and the Chubichev Russia was back and forth. At that time, it was controlled by Russia. Poland didn't exist for those 20 years. And um, my uncle was born over there. My dad's three years younger. He's born right over here. And they moved to, to Chicago from Brooklyn. And um, my dad was raised by a single mother, my, my grandmother. And most of his life in the Depression. And she didn't speak English very well. And so they were very poor. And he worked real hard. He got got out of the army, and he went to a junior college. And then he got into Northwestern University Law School. And I, I think he I think he might have forged his uh, credentials to get into Northwestern University Law School. And he graduated first in his class because he just he was wicked smart. And um, he went to work. He clerked for Arthur Goldberg for a while. Then he worked for um, Elmer Gertz, who was a very famous Chicago attorney. So there's that. So then before Levittown, there was this community, I think it was the first planned community after the war, called Park Forest, Illinois. And so I think I was like, one, we moved down to Park Forest, and there's early Kodachrome films of these wonderful little brick houses the size of somebody's small garage today, you know, and everybody was happy as a clam, you know, because these were poor immigrant kids, depression kids, war kids, and all of a sudden, because of the GI Bill, and the uh, uh, the building of these uh, uh, developments, they could have a house. Something was just the, the impossible dream. And then we moved to a community called South Shore. It was a little Jewish enclave of a few blocks between a uh, Catholic neighborhood and a black neighborhood. Black black neighborhood was the other side of Stony Island, and the Catholic neighborhood was the other side of 71st Street, and there like five square blocks of Jews living there. And we used to get beat up all the time. And um, the uh, the neighbor was kind of interesting. Some interesting people came out of that little, it's called South Shore Highlands, I think. I I came out of the Larry Ellison, who founded Oracle, came out of there. And Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Columbia for many, many years, came out of there. And uh, uh, Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times came out of there. Several other people who did rather well coming out of this little dinky enclave. And when we come back, we learn what happens to David Mamet. And my goodness, how far he came from this little dinky part of Chicago. More with our conversation with David Mamet after these messages.
Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with novelist, playwright, screenwriter, David Mamet, and his new book, Chicago. We're talking about his life and the town he grew up in, and David entering high school. And so I went to the public schools when my last couple of years of uh, high school, I moved in with my uh, dad and my stepmother, Judy. I went to a magnificent school called the Francis Parker School and started, became friendly with the family that owned Second City. And I started working as a, as a busboy at Second City. So I'd see three shows a night of improvisational comedy, which really gave me the bug. And then uh, there we are up to date. Talk about, if you can, the influence of your dad. That is, psychologically. You know, it, it sounded to me like he was one of those old-school tough guys and nothing you could do would quite measure up. You, you have a quote in, a, in an article in New Yorker where you said, the virtues expounded by him were not creative but remedial. Let's stop being Jewish and let's stop being poor. Talk about those kinds of words. Well, you know, I, I think about my dad many times every day with thanks. And he grew up in a family without a father. His father deserted the family. And so he was raised by a marvelous mother, my grandmother, whom he adored. But he was a little bit of an old school father. But the most more important thing is that he was a magnificent role model because he worked like a dog. He would work all day and come home and change into his pajamas and a bathrobe and then eat his dinner sitting at the dining room table while working on the brief for the next day. And one day he was working really hard. He was very anxious. I said, you know, Dad, I said, you know, don't worry about the results. You're doing your best. And he said, they don't pay me to do my best. They pay me to win. So a lot of times I'm thinking of giving up and the times that I don't give in to giving up. Uh, I I remember, you know, like like him, I got the best job in the world and I have a talent for it and it pays the rent. So I, I better work hard at it. You know, there's a quote in that other New York, that New York article I told you about that was, I think, telling. You say, quote, uh, your time at the Hull House Theater in Chicago. It was the first time in my confused young life that I had learned that work is love. Talk about that. Well, Hull House there, there was a great theater run by a man named Bob Sickinger. And all the community theaters around the country were doing Charlie's Aunt and the Impossible Years. And once in a while, if they were really bold they do the importance of being earnest you know but Sickinger was doing the brig by uh, 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 Kenneth Brown and the three penny opera and the Maurice Scal plays and he just kept everybody there all night rehearsing and we all knew I don't know how he knew but we did that when we were doing those plays there wasn't any better theater being done that night any place in the world it was just it was just pure love and, and you know people hurried home from 12 hours at their straight job and spent 12 hours working with Bob it was it was marvelous one of your colleagues said we invented this myth of the Chicago theater scene what made the Chicago scene so great was that no one cared the audience didn't care they were profoundly indifferent to everything we did there is real freedom in that isn't there David well, there is, but you know, I don't know who said that, because I don't know whether that's that, true. That was Gregory Mosher said that. Oh, Greg said that. Yeah. No, but no, that's not, that's, I think that's a little bit poetic, because what I remember is quite the opposite. When I had, you know, me and Billy Macy and Steve Schachter, Patty Cox, we had our theater over on, on Halstead Street, and um, people would come up to you on the street, neighborhood people, and they'd say, hey, there was a good play last month, Dave. They understand that they're entitled to have a good time, and uh, no one's asking them to be esthetes. 
but rather we're grateful for them to show up. And if they say, geez, that was great, I'm going to tell my friends, what could be better? I don't think they were indifferent. I, th I think that two things made the theater scene. One was the audience, and the other one was uh, Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News. And what, what were your thoughts about critics as you were a young writer coming up? I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, they're assholes. You know, I mean, they were then, they are now, but there are exceptions. And a couple of the great exceptions came out of the city of Chicago, and, and one of them was Roger Ebert, rest in peace, along with Gene Siskel, who did a lot to shape American movie making. And the other one was Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News, along with Glenna Sice of the Sun-Times, to encounter critics who said, wow, this is great, thank you, here's what I liked. They understood themselves as part of the theatrical process, rather than uh, as, as people who are given a, a free ride uh, to CARP. Well, you've done something that very few people have done. We've had some novelists make their way to screenwriting, and that's happened quite a number of times for Mario Puzio. I mean, we could name a lot of folks who've written novels and written great, screen, great screenplays. But you go ahead and you start this thing called screenwriting, which is so different, David. It's such a different talent. So many actors have a hard time going from the big screen to the big stage. It's such a different craft. Um, how did you, did you just do it? Did you just have a sense for it? Uh, talk about that transition. Well, I worked hard at it. You know, when I was a kid, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York for a year. And before you came, they gave you a reading list of about 50 books. So, of course, I read them. I loved them. And a lot of them were by the Russians. And uh, Stanislavski and uh, Vakhtangov and Meyerhold and Nemirovich Danchenko, and they all wrote a book. And some of them were by the people who'd worked with the Moscow Art Theater and then went into film. And I was really fascinated by their theory of filmmaking. And what they said was, the audience understands film as the juxtaposition of images. The image doesn't need to be inflected. The juxtaposition tells the story. The famous example is a young woman, shot one. A young woman, her head is down on her arms. She raises her head. Shot two, a judge sitting at a high dais wraps his gavel. Okay. Example two, shot woman, shot one, same shot, young woman, her head on her hands, she raises her head. Shot two, uh, half seen through a door, a baby standing up in a crib crying, right? So the, the idea we get from the first is hearing the verdict, and the idea we get from the second is a mother's attention, but the first shot's exactly the same. So if you look at what great film actors are doing, they're doing damn little. What they have is the great courage and understanding not to help the thing along. You write a lot about this in True and False, by the way. You have a, you have a lot to say in that book about acting, but one of the interesting things was, was what you had to say about the method acting and, uh, and a lot of the things that were being taught in New York at the time. And I don't think you were a terribly big fan of the method to be charitable, David. Well, there's nothing there. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fake. It was Lee Strasberg and my teacher, Stanford Meisner, were the, both the babies of the group theater. And, you know, they were both started out actors didn't do well. So they became directors and theoreticians and they formed two schools, uh, the Meisner school and the Strasberg school that were an attempt on their part, legitimate attempt to understand what acting was because they were drawn to it. They loved it. They couldn't do it. They tried to understand it. So what Lee Strasberg did, I don't think he did it on purpose. He just got very, very lucky, is he had a, a, a beginning reputation. And so everybody in the country wanted to get into the actor's studio. 
So he would see a thousand actors and pick two. So who's he going to pick? He picks the people with the greatest talent, right? So they are going to reflect glory on the actor's studio, not from anything that he taught them, but from the fact that, that he chose them. Yeah, and so all of that psychological warfare, that the, and I studied with a couple of these characters, and they were more Svengali than anything else. I was repulsed. I had played basketball and played sports, and sports is all about activity and action. It's doing. And in large measure, these people were putting me on a couch, and I, I actually resented it, David. Well, it's terrible, and what it, it, it calls for a, um, a codependence, uh, a folly I do between the teacher and, and the student. And the, the teacher has to you know, pretend he's teaching something, he may think he is. And the student has to pretend he's learning something, he may think he is. But what he's really undergoing is shame. And so the only way that he can overcome his shame is either to just quit and say, fuck you, I'll figure it out myself, or to say, let me try harder. So what you see is a lot of actors who, quote, study the, quote, method, trying harder, which all that does take you out of the scene. And when we come back more with David Mamet, we promise not to take you out of the scene. Indeed, we're going to put you in a scene as we go out. The movie Glengarry Glen Ross, based on Mamet's play. In this scene, Alec Baldwin is giving a motivational speech to some real estate salesman in a rainy office in downtown Chicago. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. Turn to our conversation with author David Mamet, the book Chicago. Let's pick up where we left off. You have a, there's almost a, a running theme in a lot of what you write, David, about the expert culture. And you have this great line. And by the way, long before you came to conservatism, there was a line I'll never forget you wrote. And I'm, I'm approximating, and I don't remember where I read it, but it said something like this. And you were speaking directly to me, who was trying to get direction from these gurus, when in the end you were saying, find it yourself, dummy. It's okay. And you said, if you want to learn how to act, uh, act. If you want to learn how to write, write. If you want to learn how to direct, direct. The audience will teach you. Uh, don't go to college. Don't listen to that professor. You were really encouraging all of us, young actors, young artists, young writers, to write in front of audiences as quickly as possible and learn from that experience, which, of course, David, even though at the time you didn't know it, that's a very free market idea that the audience, the consumers, the market will teach. 
Yeah, well, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess it was. But I mean, they certainly taught. I don't know any other way to learn how to write a, a, a play and to put it on in front of an audience. Because if you're writing for a teacher, you've just uh, uh, subjected yourself to slavery. You're saying everything's dependent. I'm not a free person. Everything's dependent on the opinion of someone else. When in fact, the opinion of the audience is not is not mitigated through intellectuality. They're going to give you a, like. Billy Wilder said, individually they may be dumb cuffs, but collectively they're a genius. Yeah. You know, that, that, and when, when you got to, when your life, when you're living your livelihood and your self-respect depends on a verdict from which there is no appeal, you're probably going to start paying attention to it. And we're talking to David Mamet. His book is Chicago. It's a novel. Pick it up. The dialogue from the beginning, he'll own you. We're going to get to that in a little bit, a little bit more about his life. By the way, Mario Andretti's life, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. It's up there. We finished it. It's beautiful. Billy Graham's life, that's up there. And, he, and Johnny Cash, tomorrow night is his birthday, and we celebrate it. We celebrate it every year. You're going to hear from Johnny. You're going to hear from Rick Rubin and a lot of musicians. It's a remarkable hour, OurAmericanNetwork.org. David, you write about talent, and you write about courage, and you say this. You said, a concern with one's talent is like a concern with one's height, it is an attempt to appropriate prerogatives which the gods have already exercised. Talk about talent. I don't know what it is. You know, a lot of people, I, I, I'm doing a bunch of publicity because um, I just wrote this book. And so I kind of like people to know about the book. But I stopped doing publicity for years and years and years because it made me feel stupid. And I said to one guy, I said, one guy, I just started doing publicity. He said, why, why did you stop doing publicity? I said, because it made me feel stupid. And I said, well, and he said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, well, see, because what I, what I realized, most of the questions that get asked are unanswerable. They're in effect rhetorical questions, which are statements. Right. Say, my God, how did you do those rhetorical question? There's no answer to it. I don't know. You know, it beats the hell out of me. I could sit on and try to figure it out, but it ain't going to help you. Now, one of the great geniuses of modern life, I think, is Bill Waterston, who did um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right? And I love Kelvin and Hobbes, but Bill, later on in his career, did a, a kind of compendium, and he said, oh, here's how I got this idea, here's how I got that idea. And he just he, he knocked the sheen off it. I thought, man, you're coming very close to talking me out of appreciating the, uh, I don't want to know how you did it. Right. And P.S., you don't know how you did it. That's so true. And, and then all the mystery's gone and, and, and don't tidy it up for me and don't explain what it all means. What's the, uh, they're just the worst questions for artists and they're even worse for the audience, David. By the way, in that same thing on talent, you wrote this, a common sign in a boxing gym. Boxers are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. I would rather be able to consider myself in that way than to consider myself one of the talented. And if I may, I think you would too. Talk about courage, David. It's a it's something that I think is in short supply, and I think you, in your own way, write a bit about that as well. Well, I mean, there's a great line in in Three Kings where it's a George Clooney and he's head of a he's in charge of some platoon and some go, about to go into combat and the kid says I'm scared and George says, uh, well, you know, you got to do the acting and get the courage afterward, and the kid says that's. F and Joyce says, yeah, you bet it is, but that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Let's talk about your, your faith walk, if we can. I mean, and, and you start to write in, in the mid-2000s about being Jewish and what that means. Um, talk about this ex exploration into faith and religion. Well, I got married in 1991, and uh, my wife, who is, uh, she has a bunch of uh, Jewish ancestors on her 
one side of her family, she grew up in Scotland, her parents are British, and they were of no particular religion. And she said, well, we have to have a Jewish wedding. I said, well, what an odd thing to say. Well, well why? Why is that? She said, well, you're Jewish. And I thought, well, gosh, that's true. So she started taking introduction to Judaism classes for uh, people not of, not, of, not of Jewish faith. And I started going with her class. I realized I don't know anything. I was raised in this uh, Episcopal reform movement in Chicago. It was completely assimilationist. And it was like, you know, it was like taking the bath in cold water with your clothes on. There's just nothing to it. And that the, the assimilationist streak of American Jews, especially after World War II, is completely understandable. I mean, I was born in 47 and 45. They were throwing my people alive into ovens, for Christ's sake. It's no, it's no wonder that the Jews wanted to assimilate, but they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, so we started investigating Judaism, so she converted, and we started going to synagogue and learned Hebrew and found, my God, this is, this is a magnificent religion. And all, you know, all of us red diaper babies who said, oh my God, the magnificence of the Inuit or the magnificence of the American Indian or the magnificence of the African American or the blah, blah, blah. Why is it that my particular ethnicity is the only one that doesn't have a beautiful tradition? And we found out uh, in effect that it does. And a pretty old one too, David, a pretty old one. And yeah. it's ama- I think it's fascinating that people go through this world not knowing who or what they are. And it must have been something to you to discover your own history. It was grand. I mean, the other thing about history is that the people who came over in like right around world, before and after World War One was my my grandparents. They left everything behind. I mean, the idea that one would know one's great grandparents or one's great uncle was unheard of. I mean, everybody I knew in my little community growing up. Their, either their parents or their grandparents were immigrants. They had no artifacts from the old country. They, they didn't have that many relatives from the country. If they had any at all, they probably either got killed by Hitler or Stalin. And the kids were being raised in this uh, kind of phony, baloney, fuzzy little bunnies uh, uh, reform movement. And Judaism was reduced to, quote, good works. It was, it was reduced to the Democratic Party. And when we come back, more of our conversation with David Mamet, author of Chicago. We're going to dig into the book. Right now, we want to throw to a clip from one of the great pieces of writing from Mamet, and it's the 1982 screenplay from the movie The Verdict. Here's Paul Newman playing Frank Galvin, a once-promising Boston attorney who was fired from an elite firm because he was an alcoholic. This Irish Catholic guy, down on his luck, gets handed a case from a friend. It's an open-and-shut med-mal case, and he should probably just take the money. But he goes to visit a girl in a coma, and he sees her, and his Catholic conscience is sparked, and he becomes a lawyer again. This is his remarkable closing argument. We become weak. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today, you are the law. You are the law. Not some book, not the lawyers, not a a marble statue, or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are They are, in fact, a prayer, a fervent and a frightened prayer. 
prayer. In my religion, they say act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you if, if we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. Turn to our conversation with novelist, screenwriter, and playwright David Mamet, and we had left off talking about David's spiritual journey, and we continue now with our recorded conversation. I would assume that your 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 exploration into faith, almost inexorably, David, led you into a sort of a political transformation. One probably prompted the other in some respects, didn't it? Well, I think you're probably right. You know, for example, I'll tell you this. I wrote a book called The Wicked Son because I started thinking it's called anti-Semitism and the, and the Jewish self-loathing and the Jews. And I started thinking about Jewish anti-Semitism and Jewish assimilationism. I thought very long and hard about it. Wrote a pretty good book and Fran Lebowitz read it. And she said, oh my God, wait till you see what the left is going to do to you. And I thought, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, you know, I'm on the left. I don't know what the left would find objectionable to about the book. But apparently some people got upset because I was telling the truth. And so the more I studied uh, 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 Judaism and, uh, and uh, Jewish literature and the, and the Torah, the more I realized that that's flat out the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that it comes absolutely from a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, and that that understanding has, has kept us together for and fighting for 240 years. Indeed, and 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 what's what's fascinating about this this journey of yours, David, is that ultimately you end up writing a, an article in the Village Voice, and I don't think anyone was prepared for that. And were you at the reaction? Well, I wasn't prepared for it because the article that the title that they gave to the article was the original title of the article was political civility, because I, my rabbi at the time had been speaking very. Uh, very vehemently about uh, about respecting each other's opinion and uh, uh, hearing the other fellow out and having the ability to tell the other guy's opinion back to him such that he says, yes, that's true. And so I wrote an article called Political Civility. And in the article, I said, I said I, I, I'm even being uncivil to myself. I said, for example, for years I've been referring to myself as a brain-dead liberal. I said, well, that's just not civil, bubbity-bubbity-boo. So the Village Voice takes it, and they put a scare headline on it, yep. why I am no longer a brain-dead liberal, and all my friends became acquaintances. Let's talk about fiction, because this, this book, it's about so much, and I don't like giving away too much, but it's about a place, it's about a time, and I, I'm going to quote J.J. Johnston to you, because he's a great actor from Chicago, and he said of you this, Dave got hit with the gangster bag early. These crooks, most of them have pipe dreams. They can't do anything right. Like they say, these guys would F up a two-car funeral. And so these wise guys, this edgy part of life that was a big part of Chicago, 
Well, it becomes a big part of your book. Uh, talk about why a piece of fiction now and why this book. And it feels like it's hitting so many of the themes you've been playing with your entire life. Well, I was just having a time in my life. I started writing one afternoon. You know, I just got sick of myself for being such a lazy swine and got to be four o'clock. So I started writing a little sketch about something or other in Chicago. The next day I wrote another one. After a while, I said, oh, maybe there's a book here. And uh, when you grow up in Chicago, you grow up with, uh, you know, just like um, uh, in, in Naples, you know, you grow up, you're going to be expected to sing. In Chicago, the, the ethos, at least that we grew up with in my generation on the south side, was the gangster ethos. That's where Al Capone lived. Your great-grandmother brought him groceries. He once gave a turkey to your aunt. Oh, that's where the cop, blah, blah, blah. That's where Dean O'Banion got shot. I went to high school across the street from the garage where they had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And uh, I used to walk in the park where Nails Morton's horse kicked him to death. And that's kind of... But those were kind of like the the bumping posts, if you will, of of Chicago geography. It's all gangsters. Yeah, and and the the process of writing for you, uh, it, it's you know I, I have something here of you talking about how at least when you were writing movies, you hit it on file cards first, and then you said when the progression of incident incidents is so clear that you no longer need the cards, then you're ready to write. And then we learn that you write very fast once that happens. That true still for this and and for you? Well, a, a, a novel's really really different because you get you get to muck about, you know, you get to expatiate a little bit. And uh, but there's two things that the 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 they're equally important in a play and perhaps less equally important in a novel. In a play, there has to be the immediacy of the line. The line has to be beautiful and poetic, and line has to make sense. The second one is every line has to put forward the plot. If both of those things aren't true, you might have a, a an okay play, but you're not going to have a good, and you'll never have a great play. It has to do both things. Whichever you do first, you're going to have to do the second one second. If you start off and you write a plot of the play, you're going to have to go back and make sure that each line, each instance of each interchange stands by itself rather than simply being tendentious and putting forward the plot. And if you do the other thing, you write this great scene but doesn't put forward the plot, you either got to throw it out and start again or make it put forward the plot. Because all dramatic writing is about making the audience wonder what happens next. Yep. You can make them wonder what happens next and also delight them in what's happening. Now you're writing a pretty good play. Yep. So you need, both of these things need to be done in a novel too, but perhaps the, the, the plot is not as important. You get, you get to say, oh, by the way. Yeah. You get to take detours. In fact, that's why people read. They want a good detour from, from now and then. But, you know, you're, you're almost talking like uh, Hitchcock was listening to Truffaut. And, and on that great interview that we've covered once here on this show, I mean, Hitchcock was the master at moving that plot. and hurt. I mean, his plots hurtled along and the characters just hurtled along with them. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, talk and talk of do you, do you teach anymore, David? Do you have an inclination to teach? You used to teach. I'd seen you teach. It 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 it, it was really remarkable because you weren't a typical teacher. You weren't playing the Svengali game at all. You were an anti-teacher teacher, almost like a Bear Bryant. You were more like a coach than you were a teacher. And then you were pushing people out to do stuff. Uh, do you have any inclination to do that anymore at this stage of your life? Well, you know that's that's a, that's a very gratifying to hear you say that because I said you know. I don't have a lot of respect for most teachers. I've seen a lot of them, you know, both in the private schools and public schools, schools I worked at, schools I sent my kids to. Some of them are geniuses. 
Some of them are time service, just like any other profession. But I don't think the fact that someone's a teacher entitles them to our respect flat out. Let's see how good they do. But what we remembered all through our lives is the coach. It's true. Our, we did an hour on Bear Bryant, uh, David, and we talked to people who hadn't been under his influence for 40 years. And every single one of them had a moment and a memory. And it was all the same. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me how to dig deeper. It wasn't the actual X's and O's. It was something so much more spiritual. It had a spiritual dimension to it. And it was this guy seeing these guys' capacity and that there was more inside them than they knew. And uh, I just think there are very few people who have that gift. And you had it. And I, I'm sure you still have it. And the question I'd always, I always ask people is when we have these gifts, uh, does God command us to, to apply those gifts? Um, well, so th- that's why I ask. These guys came to me last year. They're, they're doing some um, downloadable thingy called Masterclass. And they have a bunch of celebrities, actors and writers and uh, uh, physicists and blah, blah, blah. And they asked me what I do. And I said, and I thought about it. I said, yeah, sure. So I was in the, the studio for several days and um, they added it down to, I think, a five, it might be even five hours. And they prepared it magnificently. And they talked me through various aspects of writing and dramatic construction and uh, uh, so forth. And I'm very happy that I did that. And uh, I teach once in a while back at my theater company. I'm a member of New York, the Atlantic Theater Company. But um, I enjoy, I, I, I kind of enjoy it too much. You know, I, and, and I, I, I don't want to get in the kid's way. <laughs> well, that's so true. We felt, I felt that just sitting in on two in New York that you didn't want to get in our way. And that shows a lot of faith in us in the end and not in yourself. Uh, David Mamet is the writer Chicago is the book. It's a novel. Pick it up at Amazon.com. Chicago, again, at Amazon. We'll put it up on our website and take a listen. And uh, David, thank you so much for this time. Oh, you're so welcome. We're done. Oh, boo-hoo. I'm having such a good time. (laughs) It was terrific, David. And that was our recorded conversation with author David Mamet, his new book, Chicago. Go to Amazon.com now and get it. The dialogue crackles. It's everything you'd ever expect from a David Mamet novel or any piece of writing And by the way, you know his work from Glengarry Glen Ross. You know it from movies. We played a clip from The Verdict with Paul Newman. And of course, we're going to leave with another clip. But again, David Mamet, Chicago. It's a novel. You won't be able to put it down. Pick it up at a store near you or go online. And again, the novel Chicago by David Mamet. And so we leave with a clip and go and pick up this movie on Netflix if you get a chance called The Edge. 1997, and it stars Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Hopkins is a billionaire, has a beautiful bride, and Alec Baldwin is a, well, he's a photographer with an eye for that young bride. There's a plane crash in the Alaska wild. Uh, Kodiak Bear is on the hunt for the party that's lost. And it takes the old man to teach this young guy how to fight this stalking bear or die. And here's a pep scene in which the older Hopkins is trying to stir the courage of the younger paramour played by Alec Baldwin. Oh, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. I'm going to kill the bear. And again. I'm going to kill the bear. Good. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. Yeah. You're damn right. 
This is Our American Stories, and again, the novel, Chicago, and the author, David Mamet. Pick up the book however you can. our American stories and now it's time for a segment by Jesse and you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it and this one's just called more cowbell we're high up in the Swiss Alps and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animal, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells, were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958 track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music. Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free. And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. Arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit, charting at number 12 in 1976. Now, you probably know where I'm heading with this. To the pinnacle of cowbell fame in modern history. 
On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with fame producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. Um, Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> this is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top that Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever! And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper. Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was... Um, uh, Randy Brecker put a the, he put a flugelhorn part on it or a trumpet or something in the in the middle part the that part so uh, and we didn't like it nobody nobody in the group liked it you know and so uh, erased that track so I said hey I want to do I want to do a triangle in that part that's what I want I really I hear a triangle in my head and they're like and the the uh, one of the producers, there was three, there was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out, and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation. I don't know if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said... Uh, Okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, it, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. The tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it. And he's like, he's like yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a, beat, a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And, and everybody's like, yes, that's it, that's it. So it's funny that, uh, you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. More Cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts, stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. 
Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken more cowbell duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows. More cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our On Leadership series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone named David Wilson, whom you likely don't know, but you'll be glad you met him. I was literally born with a golden spoon in my mouth. I was born in Iowa on a farm, the oldest of five kids. My dad worked at John Deere Waterloo Tractor Works. My mother sold Stanley Home Products on a party plan. I was lucky enough to have the opportunity that we didn't have anything. <laughs> you know, we, did, we didn't have anything. Whatever we wanted, we had to earn. It was a terrific lesson that sadly, it's difficult to pass on to your children when you become successful because you realize you don't want your children to have to sort of grow up the way you did until you figure out that the way you grew up was pretty damn special. So uh, Iowa was a great place to be from. It, it's a place where you, you learn by example that you have to plant in the spring if you're going to reap in the fall. And you don't really see the rewards of plowing and disking and planting and praying for rain until six months later when you pick the corn or, or harvest the wheat or the soybeans. So it's a terrific place to grow up. Nature sort of shows you that you have to work to be successful. And even you, you can't see the goal. You have it in your mind. But the goal is to have a good harvest, but you have to do a lot of things to prepare for it and then hope that it comes to in the end. As a youngster, I had the opportunity to earn money in four seasons. You could rake leaves in the fall and shovel snow in the winter, uh, rake leaves in the spring and mow grass in the summer. At that time, most women didn't work, but the man didn't if he couldn't get out of his driveway. I mean, the snow overnight, you know, I used to pray for snow. It'd be two, three, four feet of snow in northeastern Iowa. And so you had to get up at five o'clock in the morning when it was still dark and go knock on doors because the guy couldn't go to work if he couldn't get his car out of the garage. True, but who wants someone knocking on their door at 5 a.m.? A guy who's got to be working at seven o'clock, that's who. <laughs> yeah, a guy, a guy who wants to be working at seven o'clock is happy to have somebody. Are you going to shovel your snow? No, I will. Okay. The best part of that was, is it really taught me a lot about business. First of all, I had to go knock on the door. You know, can I shovel your driveway? No. Can I shovel your driveway? No. Can I shovel your driveway? How much? A dollar. No. I'll give you 50 cents. Okay. So you had to ask for the order. Yeah, then you had to negotiate the price. Then you had to perform, and then, then you went to school. <laughs> you know, then it was, you know, and then it was 8 o'clock in the morning. You had to get it done before school started. And then you come back after school and try to collect your 50 cents. Well, 
Walt's not home yet. <laughs> okay, well, I know, he, but he got to work because I shoveled his driveway this morning. Okay, well, when he comes home at 7 o'clock, I'll make sure he puts out the 50 cents for you. And then on night and weekends, the five kids would farm. We, had, we farmed, and we had uh, cattle, horses, and we grew corn. So it was a good seven-day-a-week job, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you don't know any better, you think that's how kids grow up, and pretty much everybody in northeastern Iowa, that's how they were growing up. When I went to college, I had to pay my own way through college. My mother paid for room, board, and books for first semester and said, if you like it, you'll figure out how to, how to finish. And I did. I worked initially at a Montgomery Ward store selling shoes nights and weekends. And then I worked in a manufacturing plant in a factory second shift. I mean, a full 40-hour week from 3 o'clock to 11 o'clock. Then uh, an earthen dam broke and flooded that factory, put five feet of water in it, and they laid off six, seven hundred people. Everybody lost their job. And so I looked in the paper the next day, and there was an opening at a car dealership, a nighttime job at a car dealership. The job description was go pick up telephone company vans. A 40 Conline van was the first van there ever was. This was in uh, 1968, and a job entailed going to the telephone company, picking up a van, driving to the dealership, changing the oil, changing the filter, lubing the car, the grease zerks, washing it inside, washing it outside, and that paid $5. Now, the minimum wage was $1.35, and I could do one an hour. So I was making triple minimum wage, working four hours a night, making 20 bucks, 100 bucks a week. I mean, that was, that was actually good pay for a college student in 1968. So <clears throat> one day in my haste, I ran the car up on the lift, I drained the oil, took the plug out of the pan, set it down, washed it inside, washed it outside, and the last thing I did was change the filter and then put five quarts oil in it. I did that, drove it back to the telephone company. Well, I never put the plug back in the pan. So the next day, the guy gets in the van, ruins the engine. Uh, it's obvious what the problem was. There was no, <laughs> all the oil ran out. $285 for the engine at that time for a used one. And I had mechanic friends by that point who said they did the work for free. So I told the dealer, take half my pay. And after about two weeks, I said, I, I can't live on half my pay. I can't live on 50 bucks a week till that engine's paid for. So let me stand around that coffee machine and smoke cigarettes and sell cars because you're open seven days a week. And I'm, I'm sure I can do that just as well as those guys. And he said, I mean, come on, you're 20 years old. You can't sell cars. I said, you're, and you're a full-time college student. I said, let, let me do it. Uh, give me a chance. And so he did. And uh, I was a top salesman the very first month. The very first month, and, from, and then on, I was a top salesman. But uh, my senior year in college, 1970, I made $29,010 selling cars. And I could have got a job teaching high school English and history for 5950 so I think sales are probably going to be it for me. I think I got to be a good salesman because of my upbringing and because of my education. I have a degree in religion and philosophy. I've been interested in religion. I understand how ethics works, morality works. I've always done things for the long run, ethically, morally, truthfully. And I've seen people do it the other way. Short timers are short timers. It's just if you, anything worthwhile takes time. And if you start taking shortcuts and stretching the truth, it's not going to end up well for you. So I think the biggest part of my success is just doing, trying to do business in an honest, ethical, moral way because I want to do it for the long run. You know, somebody said, you want to live a good life. That way, when you look back on it, as you get closer to the end, 
you can look back and enjoy it again. <laughs> you know, yeah. If you if you've, if you've messed up for the last 50 years, what's what are you looking forward? You know, you better be looking forward because there's not much to look back on, right? That's happy for you. And how about that dealership owner, that guy who was willing to give this young kid who screwed up a shot at sales? Well, he turned out to be more than a boss to David. And that, that was actually my second mentor, a guy named Dick Gray. He told me about the power of positive thinking. I hadn't sold cars maybe only six months, and he could see I was something. He took me under his wing, made me get the school calendar to figure out when are you going to graduate, when are you going to graduate. Well, I took 12 hours in the spring, 12 hours in the fall, and eight hours in the summer, so I was going to school year-round. He says, find out, you know, it's got to be August of 1970, right? He says, put that, put that on your mirror in lipstick. August 1970, you're going to be a college graduate. Look at it every day, and I did, and son of a gun, August of 1970, I graduated from college. So he just made me believe in, believe in myself. The greatest saying uh, Douglas Edwards, whatever your mind can conceive and believe, you will achieve. You will achieve. So he told me about brain waves and how your, your alpha, beta, delta, and gamma, how your brain you know, the alpha part of your brain is what's talking to you right now, but the beta part of my brain is I'm already thinking about what I'm going to be doing tomorrow, but even when I'm having this conversation, the, the delta part of your brain is a part that you can program, that makes you, and then the gamma part is what just keeps our hearts and lungs working, you know, we don't, we don't think about. But he taught me that the, the alpha, beta, the delta the, is, is your subconscious, and that you use your conscious mind to program your subconscious mind so if, if you are just so certain that you're going to graduate from college in August of 1970, your conscious mind will let you do anything that would preclude that from happening. And, you know, maybe it's mumbo jumbo, but it's, it's worked for me my whole life. It's worked for me. If I, if I wanted something, and I, you know, and I, you have to set a date. Otherwise, it's just, a, you know, a wish or a dream. But a goal is something that has a date certain to it. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to achieve this, or I'm going to have that, or I'm going to be somewhere when, you know. And he thought the luckiest guy on the face of the earth was a captain of an ocean-going vessel because he could leave New York at 8 o'clock on Monday morning and he's going to La Havre, France. And he's got to be there at noon on Sunday. Now that's six and a half days he's crossing the ocean and all he can see is water, you know. But he's got a plan. He knows that if he's here on Monday and here on Tuesday and here on Wednesday, this this spot, you know, on Thursday, all he can see is water, but sure as heck, Sunday morning the sun comes up and there on the horizon is La Harve and setting a goal, doing each step along the way to get there and son of a gun, when the time's up, there you are. In contrast to this, David's plan for when he graduated college fell apart right before his very eyes. And when we come back, more on David Wilson's story, our On Leadership segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And they're doing everything in their power to make small businesses grow into big ones. When we continue David Wilson's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Give us your email and we'll send you our five best stories of the week. You can listen to them or you can read them. We'll have them in transcript form. And now we continue with the story of an Iowa farm boy named David Wilson who became the number one salesman at a car dealership all the while in college. I graduated from college in Iowa in 1970, and a friend of mine, a guy named John Lancaster, and I were fraternity brothers at the University of Northern Iowa, and he was a car salesman, I was a car salesman. We were going to open our own dealership. We were going to buy an Oldsmobile Datsun GMC dealership in Marshalltown, Iowa. We both had homes. We sold our homes to move to Marshalltown and get the money for the down payment on the dealership, and the deal blew up. And I moved to Phoenix. I thought I would get out of the car business or do something different. But he didn't have a clue what he was going to do in Phoenix. I didn't really know. I had a uh, a Mercury that I drove out there dragging a U-Haul trailer. And when I got to Scottsdale, I'd never been there before. never been to Arizona. And the rear end was starting to make a noise. So I said, i got to take that to the dealership. So I... I unhooked the U-Haul trailer in the Holiday Inn parking lot where I was staying, and I knew it was on Camelback Road. And I said, this is a big city, I'm a farm boy. So I'm driving down the Camelback Road in Phoenix. I find the Lincoln Mercury dealership. I pull in there, go to the service department, and a guy comes out and says, see, I can help you. I said, yeah, my rear end's making you know, noise. He drives around the block. I said, I think you got U-joint or rear ends out. I said, well, I've been working with Lincoln Mercury. I'm sure it's under warranty right now. I said, well, look at that big that rental trailer hitch you got on the back of the bumper, that's probably what did it. He said, that won't be under warranty. I said, oh, come on, you're kidding. He said, no, I'm just, we got a little warranty problem here. I don't think I can get the Ford Motor Company to pay for that. I said, employees get a discount? He said, why, do you work here? I said, not yet. <laughs> I left the car sitting in the drive. I walked over to the sales office and had a job there that afternoon as a salesman. Five years later, I owned the place. Five years later, I became the general manager and 25% partner there. And it would be this experience as a minority partner that taught him how to act as a majority partner. My partner there, the guy that owned 75%, I don't want to be disparaging, but he had a son that was only five, six years younger than me. I was never going to get the other 25% uh, or other 75%. So I guess I was never going to end up being the dealer, which is a good thing and a bad thing for me. Bad thing, I'd been there 10 years. I thought it was my career. Felt like my life was over to leave. But I knew I was never going to be satisfied being the junior partner. And, and, and he treated me like a junior partner. So on the one hand, I didn't like it. On the other hand, it was a great way for me to learn. When you're the majority partner, how do you treat the junior partner, okay? He didn't consider that there was never any votes because it was 75-25. So I learned to treat my 25% partners like they own 75, okay? It's their business. They're ones... They're there five or six or seven days a week. They're responsible. I trust them. There's no votes now either, you know. I let them, they make the decisions. And this decision to let other people make decisions can be hard for the founders of companies. Many dealers don't even have partners. They own it all, reap it all, and control it all. But David, a guy who empowers his junior partners who run the dealership so much so that in one case he refused to visit his store for three years, knows that this seemingly counterintuitive decision is what's decided his success. 
we've been up to 20 dealerships and we had a junior partner in every one. I'm a 25% owner. They earn their 25% out of sweat equity, okay? I would give them 10% of the stock and they would get an annual dividend of 10%. With that, they could buy five more percent. And then with that 15% dividend, they could buy five more percent. And if they won the lottery, I didn't let them write a check for the 25%. I wanted to see how they acted, how they matured, how they grew into being a partner. We have a saying in our business, you can get dealeritis. So if a guy, you give him 10% and all of a sudden he joins two country clubs and it's going here and going there, you know, I, I don't need uh, an investor. I need someone who's going to run that particular dealership. So over a five-year period, they can earn 25%. And anytime during that five years, if it isn't working out, I just write them a check for what they paid, even though they bought it out of the profits. So it's helped me attract good people and retain really the cream of the crop, the best of the best. Our dealerships are wildly successful, high volume. We have beautiful facilities everywhere we are. We're in terrific markets, Southern California, Las Vegas, Nevada, Scottsdale, Arizona, and we have two dealerships in Mexico. So by bringing along good people, training them, you can only really, they call them a dealership. And I think it is like a ship in that there's gotta be a captain and two captains sink a ship. So I let these guys run with the ball. They've worked with me for a long time. I don't buy a company and then advertise for a partner, all right? We grow our people. And when we have people that are ready, then I go out and try to find another opportunity, buy a dealership or, or start a new one somewhere and promote people from within. And that kind of drags everybody out because when we open a store or buy a new store, we might take a sales manager from one store to become the general manager. And then that, that sales manager, the guy who was behind him, gets to move up to sales manager of, of the old store. And a guy who was the assistant service manager somewhere becomes the service manager. It's showing by example that we're not kidding. We don't, you, you come to work for our company, do a good job. We're gonna promote you from within and you get a chance to be, have a really successful life. The ladder of opportunity is so strong at Wilson Automotive Group that it's enabled them not to do something that almost everyone has to do. We have never advertised for an employee. We don't advertise for employees. People want to work for our company. We build a great culture from the inside out. I was taught you want to hire fathers or sons or husbands and wives because of conflicts. We have a lot of second and third generation people working for us. Father and son mechanics working side by side. Mother and daughter working in the business offices. Four or five brothers at some dealerships. In addition to the opportunity to work with your family and rise up within the company, this one other thing might have a little something to do with not having to advertise for people. We overpay, but we overexpect. So how can you overpay and be successful, right? Well, you get five men to do seven men's job or six people to do eight people's job. Then you can pay them 10 or 15% more each and it still leaves 10 or 15% more for the business. And I'd rather pay overtime for good people than have part-timers coming and going and a lot of turnover. People have to have a living wage. And in California, it's, ex it's especially difficult to have a living wage here. So we don't, we don't pay anybody minimum wage, even starting people. We pay about 20% more than minimum wage just to start. And we want all of our employees to make 20 or 30% more than the average person in some other dealership. If you got rent to pay and groceries to buy, you might have to be stealing the spare tire out of cars to sell it 
or the batteries or steal, you know, if you try to steal people's labor, they're going to have to steal something from you to, to pay their rent, their light utilities, their kids' school clothes. So we want our employees not thinking about they're not going to have enough food to eat or be able to pay their rent. These people are better because on their day off, they're not looking for another job. They're going to the beach or taking their kids shopping or having a fun day or going on vacation. They're not out applying for another job. They show up early because they have a job they don't want to lose. They go home late because they have a job they don't want to lose. So they become more productive, more effective. So we have no turnover and nobody quits because it's very hard to get in. And they actually, they're earning the extra 20% we're paying them and we're saving on employee costs. So we're very, very fortunate that we've been able to attract. That's probably, I believe, my biggest skill. I wasn't the world's greatest car salesman. I was good at it. I was a pretty good sales manager, pretty good finance manager, pretty good used car manager. But I think I think my biggest skill is being able to recognize good people, hire them, train them, retain them, motivate them, compensate them, make them better than what they thought they could be. And when we come back, the final segment with David Wilson, and I know what you're thinking, what a guy. And my goodness, we need to hear from guys who run and own businesses like this so much more of. We need to hear from them. We need to hear about their stories because this is what makes American business hum, folks. People like David Wilson. When we come back, more of David's story here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of this remarkable feature in our On Leadership series, which, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, working hard to turn small businesses into big ones with policy that makes it easier for those small business owners to grow. And we're talking with a guy named David Wilson, an Iowa farm boy who went on to build the 13th largest car dealership in the country with dealerships in California, Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico, and employs over 2,000 people and produces more than $2 billion in annual sales. Let's continue with David. I saw other people, other managers and other dealers get jealous when some of their employees made a lot of money. Like, I gotta cut, I gotta cut their pay because they're making too much money. And I've always had the philosophy, they can't make too much because I'm getting the last dime, all right? What a thought. Very rarely will someone decide to leave this awesome culture and go work somewhere else. But one person's story shows if you're gonna do that, you ought to think long and hard about it. I don't begrudge anybody that leaves our company for a promotion, okay? If they're a salesman ready to be a manager uh, or they're a manager and want to be the general sales manager, great. But if we don't have an opening, then you know they want to move on, okay. But it doesn't happen very often. But we have a rule. If you leave, if you leave for a lateral job, we're done. Goodbye. Goodbye. Cause, because, well, we, we, we hire somebody to take your place. And now that guy's important to me, okay? <laughs> 
Plus, it's, it's just downright offensive to leave for something that ain't better. Well, it is. It is. Well, it is. You know, it's. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. That never happened. For, it doesn't happen for a long time. But but it, that, this was 20 years ago. Guy did leave for. It was a lateral position because they promised him more. But you know, he wasn't smart to realize that that they were not telling him the truth either. And after about 90 days, he wanted to come back. Well, no, no, no. You can come back and start as a salesman again. So and he did, and ended up uh, being being a, a partner. So, but that's an example to everybody else. If you leave, guess what's going to happen? You're going to come back as, not where you were, but back at the bottom of the line. But again, we're not holding any grudges. If you're a sharp guy, got some skill and talent and ability, honest and ethical, you, you're right back on the, on the food line. And, you know, if we can promote you, we're going to promote you. And see if you'll turn out to be a leader. I mean, the Army doesn't get their generals from Harvard. They, they'd learned by example. Every general started as, as a private, you know, and, and then became, you know, worked his way up the ranks, and that's, that's, how, that's how you become a leader. Our philosophy of leadership is leadership by example. You can't manage an army into battle. Nobody's gonna follow a manager. People don't come in early or go home late for a manager. They don't miss their kid's softball game or, or be late for something. For a leader, they'll die. They'll lay down. You can't manage an army into battle, but you can lead one. You can lead one into battle. And thankfully, over my career, I've had many mentors and leaders who taught me how to lead. And I, I can see now that that's the only way to be successful in one of it. Is you have to be a leader. Managers have titles, okay? Managers have titles. And I've had employees, hey, I want to be the sales manager. I want to be the general manager. Okay, I could give you that title tomorrow, but until the person behind you and everybody in that department, when, when they start coming to you and ask you, hey, uh, we just had a power failure, what should we do now? Well, are the lights off across the street or is it just our building or what? So when the employees come to you and ask and they have a problem, they're already starting to recognize you as the leader. And I'm so proud of the people that I have as partners now. I'll, I'll pull into a place and I'll see them walking across the lot and they're picking up a, an empty coffee cup or an empty water bottle or a cigarette butt. They're picking it up because that, that's, they don't have to say anything. You just, everybody sees that sooner or later. If their office is clean, everybody's office is going to be clean. If the place is neat, the whole place is going to be neat. If they take care of their workstation, everybody's going to take care of their workstation. So you lead by example, people recognize your example and then ultimately you just kind of become a leader. Their over 2,000 employees have recognized David as their leader. And in a very literal way, too, beginning in the year 1988. It originally started, I had a Ferrari Testarossa. And for Christmas, my employees, well, I only had one dealership, my employees gave me a crystal Ferrari Testarossa. And I said, you know what, as much as I appreciate it, I don't need that. It looks like it's a big paperweight on my desk, it's heavy. You know, and it was a lot of money, like $5,000. You know, I wish we'd just given that to charity. And so my secretary, who's been with me for 30 years or more now, said, uh, right, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to start a scholarship in your name. So it was like 5000 bucks or 10000 bucks. Well, that's when we only had 100 employees. Well, now it's grown to, there's a way over a million dollars in that scholarship. And in one recent year, their employees collectively gave over $500,000 of their own money by their free will to help other Americans get to where they are 
and to honor their boss. What other company does this? And it goes to post-secondary education for kids that don't have parents. We reserve it for trade and technical schools. You know, there's enough lawyers. We, these, are, these are kids that, that, you know, a job is gonna be good for them, but a career, mechanics make a lot of money. Welders, plumbers, pipe fitters. So we wanna invest in people who wanna go to the trade and technical school and actually learn a trade, you know? And there's actually a high demand for workers in the trades. In David's automotive industry, there are 25,000 car technician positions open right now, sitting empty, ready for the taking. It's a great job. And in Southern California, in seven or eight years, you could go to medical school and about eight years be a doctor and have $500,000 of student debt and make 120 grand a year your first year. In 10 years of being a technician, if you start at the bottom and are an eighth grade tech, you can make 120,000 bucks a year and with no, with no student debt. Now, the doctor might make more in his lifetime, but $110,000 a month is a pretty good job in California. And it's not just his employees who are giving. I've always been philanthropic. You know, I had a good friend, Chichi Rodriguez, uh, the golf pro, who told me a long time ago, he says, Dave, uh, whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, you will never have enough of anything. Whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, if you're waiting till you have a lot so you can give some away, you're never going to have enough, right? So yeah, whatever it is you have, if you don't share it, you will never have enough of anything. So I learned early in life to care for other people, but that's about as succinctly put philosophy as I can think. But when I was younger, I used to donate my time because I didn't, didn't have money. I mean, I was involved with a lot of charities, Boys and Girls Club, Boy Scouts. Then as I became more successful, I started donating more money and less time. Now that I'm older, I get a lot more satisfaction out of donating time again. Now I'm still giving a lot of money, but I deliver Meals on Wheels here, a substitute driver in, in Laguna Beach because I live here, I'm close, to pick up the food at the hospital, and if they call me, hey, somebody can't make it today or make it next week, you know, okay, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, you know, somebody said, well, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you get out of delivering Meals on Wheels as old people? I said, well, I'll give you an example. About five years ago, when I was only 65, I'm running to the door in my shorts and tennis shoes, and I get knock on the door, and the lady's on her handheld portable phone and sitting in her recliner, and looking through the screen door, and uh, I can hear she's talking on the phone, and I ring the doorbell, says, hey, lunch is here. And she's, oh, 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 I can hear her talking to this lady. Oh, oh, that nice young college boy is here with my lunch, honey. Um, with here's my lunch, I gotta go. And <laughs> she hangs up, her, I'm 65 years old, I still got blonde hair, but she says, that nice young college boy is here with my lunch. <laughs> she's like 90. It's all relative. <laughs> it's all relative, right, all relative. So yeah, that, you know, that was a good day for me right there. I get more satisfaction out of my doing that than writing a check for 100,000 bucks or a million bucks now, so, which we still do. And what a voice, what a story. A farm boy from Iowa, born, as he said, with a golden spoon because he, well, he didn't have anything but a work ethic and an appreciation for everything he ever earned. Earned success. Arthur Brooks from the American Enterprise Institute writes a lot about that and that it brings happiness in the end. And you can hear it, a good life, a life well-lived, 
and how we do it. Well, David Wilson's teaching us right there. Our On Leadership series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. We've had Brad Anderson, former CEO of Best Buy, Ed Renzi, who went from making 85 cents an hour and working 100 hours a week at McDonald's to becoming McDonald's CEO, Ray Dalio, Faye Vincent, Dina Dwyer-Owens, Bear Bryant's story, Vince Lombardi's too, our On Leadership series, here on Our American Stories, and today it was David Wilson's story. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, just give us your email and we'll send you our five best stories each week. You can listen to them or you can read them. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. By the way, if you have a story about someone you know, a great leader, a civic leader, a faith leader, a sports leader, send your story ideas to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.